Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal technology. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, Forensics Principal and Leader of the eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. Welcome back to another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk. Jared, I am so excited, as I often am, to invite another amazing guest into the virtual recording studio here. We have Colin Levy joining us. Colin is going to really give his background because it's way better than, than you and I can do, Jared. But I will say that we are thrilled to have him join us inside of the recording studio here, if you will. He is the author of the Legal Tech ecosystem. This book literally just came out. And the day it came out, Jared, I bought it on Amazon. I told you about it. You bought it. Uh, I told a couple other people here at BDO and they bought it as well. It is such a great book because it defines in my mind what it is that every legal professional should know if they're just starting out or they are a veteran in this industry about legal technology, about the ethics involved, about the need for collaboration, about uh, why it's so important that we know it. But I don't want to spoil everything all at once. Colin, welcome to the program. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. So why don't you uh, get going here, Colin, with us and, and tell us a little bit about your background. Why are you qualified to write the book? on the legal tech ecosystem? Sure. You know, I've been a lawyer for over a decade and over those years, I've been exposed to a lot of different ways of working as a lawyer and have also borne witness to the gap that has long existed between the tech world and the legal world. And I was driven to try to bridge that gap first through learning about how others were bridging that gap myself. Secondly, through sharing some of those learned lessons from conversations. And then third, sharing my own experiences and thoughts as I learned about the space. Uh, and all of that really just led to this book that I wanted to write to help others who, like me at one point, were trying to learn about the legal tech space and what it means for them, how it can help them, and why they should care about it. Can you just define for us what legal technology is? Yes. I would define legal technology as this. It is uh, technological solutions aimed at helping to bridge the gap between those delivering legal services and those in need of legal services enhanced by processes and people. On one of the themes that jumped out to me, and it's a theme of this podcast, is collaboration. You know, Daniel and I are always talking about collaboration between attorneys and technology professionals. Daniel's an attorney. You're an attorney. I'm not an attorney. I have a computer science background. You're talking about collaboration with business lines, business to business, you know, general counsel's office and business. Could you dive into that a little bit and just talk about how important that is in this ecosystem? Absolutely. So I think collaboration is a cornerstone of legal tech and of just general operating in this dynamic, very tech-enabled world that we live in. And the reason why I say that is because there are limits to our own knowledge. We only know what we know, and we don't know what we don't know. And what we don't know is sometimes a lot, sometimes a little somewhere in between. And it's important for us to try to become more aware of the gaps in our own knowledge so that we can be more proactive, we can help others, we can bring more value to our roles and bring more value to our departments that we're a part of. And so that's why I see collaboration is so essential to bridging this tech 
gap between the legal world and the tech world, and why I think that oftentimes we maybe not necessarily act this way, but sometimes just by nature of how we act and how we think about acting are islands unto ourselves. And that's not a good way to be. And so I personally am very driven to try to build relationships with others, to learn from them, learn from their experiences and broaden my own perspectives. And that I think is integral to how legal tech works in terms of understanding how these tools integrate into businesses, into processes, and how people are a huge part of that integration. Alan, when we talk about collaboration, it is you bring up a very good point, but I think it's worthy of defining what collaboration means in the legal tech space as you outline it in the book. Who is collaborating with who? Sure. So I think that's that's key. I've written extensively on collaboration. Uh, I've read a number of books on collaboration. I would say that collaboration uh, really is defined by a couple of things. One, it's building and growing relationships with others, especially those outside of your business function. Two, it is actually actively learning from others who are working with you from other functions. And three, it's working together for a shared goal and consistently engaging in this work together to improve upon what you're working on and keep pushing forward towards that goal that is shared by everyone that's working together. And that can take many different forms, but often the form that takes place in the legal context is between, you know, lawyer and client trying to achieve some desired result, resolution of a litigation matter, achieving a deal, revising a deal, a partnership, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, it's not just between two people, it's between different functions that are seeking to enhance the businesses of two uh, of their of, of whom they represent. So that's how collaboration works. I think it's super important. And it's often a skill that is, I think, not often valued enough as, by lawyers and legal professionals. Do you think that lawyers and legal professionals, when I say legal professionals, I mean litigation support, IT, legal operations, do you, and also providers, uh, do you feel as if there is not a sufficient level of collaboration between those functions? That's an interesting question. I think that they're often, it, they often are more proactive and more able to collaborate and want to collaborate. Are they as effective as they can be in collaborating with one another? Maybe, maybe not. I, I, I don't think I have enough data to really make a call on that. But I, at the end of the day, I certainly think that collaboration can always be improved. It's a dynamic thing. It's never static. It's never kind of, this is always how it's done. So certainly I think there's always ways to improve how you collaborate with others, regardless of your position. How helpful is technology, you know, in the end of 2023 here in, in this collaboration? And do you feel like we're actually losing some of the human element in that collaboration through all this technology that we're now using? Uh, there's certainly the potential for that, for sure. Whether that's actually happening or not um, depends, I think, on the context. There are some some cases where, sure, I think that you may be thinking you're collaborating, but really you're just relying on technology to kind of provide that collaboration effort where it may or may not be effective. Because as I said earlier, at the end of the day, technology and its utility is driven by people. Uh, and so you really have to meet people where they are. And, and that doesn't happen through just interacting with technology alone. So could collaboration be hurt by the rise of technology? Yes. Should it be hurt? You know, should you allow for that to happen? No. That's So that's an interesting point there, right? So um, how you're saying it's driven by people. 
So the human element of legal technology cannot be underestimated. And you talk a lot about in the book, actually, uh, I read this a few times where you talk about meeting people where they are. And can you define for us, Colin, what does that mean to you? So if I am a partner at a law firm and I am completely adverse to legal technology, but I've got litigation support telling me I should do something other than keyword searching. And I've got a provider who is telling me, hey, these analytics tools are so great, right? You got to use them. But I'm a partner who's so adverse to it. How, how do you meet people where they are when you've got a situation like that? So it starts with leading with empathy. Uh, you know, if you've got uh, a lawyer who says, you know, I'm not really a big fan of tech, or I'm afraid of tech, or I'm not really that tech savvy, take that into account and say, okay, I understand. So let's just start with the basics. What do you use every day to help you in your job? You know, what tools? Do you like them? How do you use them? And build off of that sort of confidence building exercise in terms of helping people understand how they could be using their existing tools better, tools that they know, tools that they're comfortable with. And then go from there as to, okay, well, since you're using those tools, have you thought about adding this? Or have you thought about perhaps making better use of this tool? Or, you know, are there add-ons? Have you thought about add-ons? Well, what are add-ons? Well, let me tell you. You know, it really starts, I think, with kind of taking things slowly at someone's pace that they're comfortable with and not forcing someone to kind of adapt because you feel like they must. Yes, change is inevitable. Yes, the world is dynamic, but you have to really not try to force change upon people because people will change if they want to change. If they don't want to change, they're not going to change. And they're certainly not going to change because you're telling them they should be, particularly lawyers. So I think it's incumbent upon vendors and others who are seeking to help lawyers or legal professionals improve to sort of see where they're starting off from and build from there. And it's also incumbent upon the lawyers as well to be open about what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with, because more honest they can be and transparent. They can be with others about where they are and how they're operating, the more they can be helped or be open to being helped. One thing that you said was interesting, and I was really hoping you'd touch on it, and you just did, and that's this idea of empathy, right? So how do you square away empathy with another topic that Jared and I wanted to talk to you about as well, which is this idea of the lawyer's ethical responsibility to understand, not just understand legal technology, but actually use legal technology. So how do you square those two, empathy and an ethical responsibility to use the technology that's there? So it starts with openly acknowledging someone's degree of comfort or discomfort with technology, but also saying, look, I get that you're uncomfortable, but there have been other points in your life, surely, where you've been uncomfortable, would have worked through those periods of being uncomfortable. So this is just another one of those. Uh, and as a lawyer, you know, you know, you are bound by your ethical code. And because the ethical code requires some degree of awareness of technology, if you're afraid of it or you fear it or you are intimidated by it, at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge that while you may be uncomfortable, you're going to have to work through it if you want to be effective as a lawyer, because it's not just ethically your duty to do so, it's also your duty to clients because clients are aware of technology and they're going to be expecting you to be using technology that they're aware of if it can, if it can help them. So, you know, you have to work with them from that point of understanding and move forward. And that doesn't mean, you know, giving in and saying, okay, you're afraid. Well, I, well, let's just not deal with it because you're afraid. It's more of, well, let's acknowledge your fear and then address it head on because that's how you get over a fears typically by addressing it head on. 
Have you seen examples where, you know, like actual examples where there was great resistance to technology and then something surprised you where, you know, you were able to get folks on board, you know, using these methods? Sure. Uh, and this actually isn't necessarily completely technology related. It's dealing with lawyers related. Um, I once worked at a place where uh, I was the only lawyer and I was trying to kind of build better relationships with the sales team. Um, and one of the ways that I went about doing that as an effort to help them and be more proactive, frankly, and, and see that I was there to help them was I, I put together an educational program where I literally would spend sessions talking through with them and engaging in a discussion with them about how I worked, why I worked, why I did what I did, technologies that I used to help me. And that made them see that I was there for them. I was there to help them. And it wasn't just about me and because I wanted to do things a certain way. It was about doing this so that it would help them, it would help me, and I could do my job and help them with their job as well. So that's kind of where I think it can be very helpful is is showing that it's not about you, it's about them and helping them be better at their job and and really shine a spotlight on them as opposed to you. Is that an example of legal design thinking that you mentioned in the book? It, it's an example of sort of legal process improvement, really. Uh, and legal design certainly plays into that as well. I mean, there's certainly ways in which you can design contracts or design documents so they don't look like a block of incomprehensible text, but are more visual, are more interesting, more engaging, but they convey the same information just in a way that is a lot more accessible than traditionally has been done. Can you expand that, though, into the training materials, into kind of some of the digital transformation that you'd like to see in legal departments as well? Absolutely. I think there are ways to illustrate how technology can play a role in different processes and in how people can help them move along and move forward. And that can often take the place of a visualization, an infographic, or quite frankly, just kind of making a process more accessible through color coding or what have you. There are all sorts of different ways in which you can use legal design and design thinking to help make things more accessible and more transparent so that legal isn't seen as some you know amorphous black hole that you put things in and don't know what happens to them afterwards. As a non-lawyer, I love this stuff. I love data. I love visualization. So this is music to my ears, certainly. There's this idea that you uh, touch on often that Jared was it was just uh, hitting on as well, where legal technology is fantastic, but it's more important to focus in on what is the problem that you're trying to solve for. I think that goes to legal design thinking. I think that goes to legal process, right? Talk to us a little bit about what does that mean in your mind with all of your experience, Colin, of designing something based around the problem that you're trying to solve for? Because am I wrong in thinking that sometimes technology may not even be the right answer? You're not wrong at all. I think oftentimes there is this sort of shiny key syndrome where you're chasing after a piece of technology thinking, you know, it's going to solve your problem or solve all your problems. And it may not even be the solution that you need because oftentimes you may be uh, chasing a solution in search of a problem, which goes back to something I say all the time, which is problem identification is the key first step to doing anything with regards to technology. You have to know exactly what it is you're trying to solve for and why it's a problem. And that means engaging with people and understanding why they see it as a problem, how it arose as a problem, and what an ideal solution looks like. Because solution identification as well can help you identify whether technology may be a potential solution or may not be. It may be something in terms of resolving a process roadblock that may involve people or having the wrong people be doing the wrong things, or they're not using right existing tools to solve a problem or what have you, 
All of that becomes clear the more due diligence you do with respect to understanding what it is you're trying to solve for. And I realize that people may want to jump towards the tech, but look before you leap is what I would say. And looking means understanding your problem first. If you were going to give advice to technologists or to lit support folks or to people, non-lawyers that, you know, need to put themselves into lawyers' shoes and understand, you know, their day-to-day, and they've never done it before. You know, what advice would you give them to, to help solve those problems? Because I don't know that they truly understand what a day in the life is like for somebody who is working on contracts all day or reviewing documents all day, right? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I would start with doing something that I that I do and have done, which is engaging with others, asking for a few minutes of their time to just understand how they work, why they work the way they do. And once you ask that question, shut up and listen, frankly, just, you know, listen to them and then follow up with questions and go from there. Uh, that's how I learned about legal tech was engaging with others and having those same brief conversations. And I think that's super important. Now, I realize not everyone is as extroverted as I may be. So in that case, read their comments, read comments, read blogs, read different websites, go to my site to learn from folks who have done this stuff before. You don't have to engage right away if you don't want to, but engagement is a really key way of learning and of building relationships with others as well. When we're talking about the evolution of legal technology, I like to think that lawyers only started to adopt legal technology after the iPhone came out. And it was like, oh my God, everything has to be an app. It was, you know, before that it was, you know, red wells and, and yellow pads, sticky notes, et cetera. Uh, and, and I joke about this in all the CLEs that I give as well, but there's a bit of a, a seriousness to it in the sense that there's a lot of like, hey, I don't understand it. I don't trust it. I'm not going to buy into this. And as we have started to evolve in legal technology, we're still having these adoption problems, right? We, you know, and I used the simple example of, you know, technology system review. It's been around for 11 years, 12 years even. And it's still very hard to adapt and adopt to. But then all of a sudden, a few months ago, comes this thing called ChatGPT. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, every lawyer that I know is using it, right? And it's and and it's without any regard to understanding what this black box is, N no understanding of what this you know large language model is, generative artificial intelligence. All they know is I can enter a couple things in here, and I can do this. And so they get onto there, but they don't get onto technology assisted review, right? So I have more questions for you on this, but let's start there. Why is it that all of a sudden we're seeing lawyers quickly adapt? to saying, hey, I could enter in some some prompts and get my answers. I think it's a I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is um, lawyers are particularly prone to shiny key syndrome, um, partly because of their uh, limited prior exposure to technology. I think two, I think there's been a tacit recognition and sometimes explicit recognition of the fact that generative AI is here to stay and it's going to dramatically reshape what it means to be a lawyer and how to practice. Uh, and lastly, I think that lawyers are realizing that clients are all over this and therefore they're expecting their lawyers to be all over it as well and their productivity gains to be realized from using these tools. So in other words, they can make more money by perhaps doing less work as well. So well, I'd add a what? cultural aspect to that as well, right? I think most of us, you know, our families are asking our opinion about ChatGPT. I don't know, you know, how many families are asking about technology access assisted review, right, Daniel? Uh, it never comes up in the gold uh, family it doesn't. dinner. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't come up here, but but definitely AI comes up a lot in ChatGPT. And I feel like I'm spending a fair amount of time trying to uh, disabuse people of uh, misnomers and myths that they have about this technology, as well as reminding them that the 
really just at the start of this journey and that there's a long way to go. There is this seismic shift. We are at an inflection point, I think, with legal technology that, to your point, this is not going away, but I think that this is going to change how we lawyer in the future or even starting three months ago, right? But I want to challenge something you said, Colin. I want to know what you think about this. You said that with AI, with ChatGPT, that clients are all over it and there's a lot of productivity gains. But one could argue the same when it comes to technology system review. There's a lot of productivity gains by being able to have the software, the algorithm, be able to surface up to you the most responsive documents first, right? And then focus in on more high value work. But we don't. So there is still this, seems to be this disconnect between technology system review, but ChatGPT is so much easier, right? Yeah, I, th I think the disconnect exists um, for a couple of reasons. One is um, just in terms of accessibility. You can just literally go to the website for ChatGPT and start working on it. Uh, now, that may not necessarily be the most productive way because it may take a while to experiment and what have you. But that is certainly, I think, an element of that, which also leads to sort of the implementation piece of it, as well as that some of these other more sophisticated technologies take some time to implement, which requires change, which requires time, resources, all of that. Uh, so it's a matter of time as well. Uh, and, and lastly, I think it's just a function of, you know, the there is stronger pressure to be adopting AI because it's so ever-present, where some of these other technologies have been around for a while, there's less pressure because while they're a little more known quantity, they're also older and perhaps may become outdated in the minds of some. So there also, I think, is that element at play. Do you see us moving into a place in the not too uh, distant future in which both law firms and corporate legal departments are embracing generative AI, whichever one it might be, right? But generative AI in a way that is going to drive margin, that's going to increase productivity and profitability. In other words, we're going way, growing beyond now, just like, hey, I need help drafting my motion for summary judgment, but it's really operating from a business perspective, operating legal as a business. Do you see it going in that direction? Yeah, I absolutely see it in that direction in that direction. I think that's been a long time coming for sure. Uh, and I think, you know, AI is going to have an interesting impact, I think, upon the billable hour as a financial model. I think the reason why it's been so resilient to change is because it's easy, it's reliable, it's particularly resilient to different disruptions, including the pandemic, and clients are used to it. That being said, you know, AI is definitely kind of making, I think, folks question, you know, is this really the best way to be billing for this? Because I know they're not taking as much time as they claim on this because of AI. So it's going to be interesting to see how things evolve going forward. And it may, let me correct myself, I don't think it may. I think it will impact the hiring of lawyers, the training of lawyers. And again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of what it means to be a lawyer and what work is done by a lawyer. How does digital transformation fit into running a legal department like a business? You know, it's typically associated with a lot of upfront costs, right? Going through a digital transformation and hopefully, you know, more efficient enterprise. But how do you, how do you make that business case, you know, for more technology, for that transformation? If you are a legal department kind of on the precipice right now, trying to figure out, you know, how do we make that switch to running like a business right now? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is businesses are ever more reliant upon data analytics. And if the legal department wants to be valued as a function, they need to be equipped with 
the ability to be fluent in the language of business, which is data analytics, and that comes with digitization. I also think that legal departments, for the most part, need to be able to kind of meet the business where where it is in terms of its ability to work with documents, work with data, be digital, um, because no one wants paperwork anymore. No one wants to physically sign anything anymore. Nothing thrills me, meaning doesn't thrill me more than having to physically sign something, A, because my signature was terrible, and B, what am I supposed to do with the now? Supposed to scan it back or whatever? No, I don't want to do that. So certainly I think digitization is a way to bring the legal department into the 21st and 22nd century and help it become more seen as an inherent part of the business as opposed to sort of this semi-outsider to the business. That makes sense. I had to put a wet signature on a document the other day and FedEx it somewhere. And I was so confused because it had been so long since I had done it. It uh, it was truly a strange experience. Oh, you should hear my rant on the phrase wet signature. It's not a pretty one. <laughs> On the topic of leveraging artificial intelligence, uh, ChatGPT, and the also circling back to something else you talked about, about ethical considerations, it's really interesting to me because uh, we have, as lawyers, this ethical obligation to understand the risks and benefits of legal technology. In fact, going further to say that we also have to make sure that we are not inadvertently exposing our client data. Uh, and so those are found in both the model rules of professional responsibility, rule 1.1, comment eight. Uh, both on the federal level as well as, you know, the corresponding states. There's 40 of them that have passed similar language. And then Rule 1.6c about making sure that the documents or anything about the client's documents aren't inadvertently being exposed. So when we talk about leveraging generative AI and understanding the context of ethics, we are at a very odd crossroads right now because we have now examples in both New York and in Colorado where attorneys are being sanctioned for just spitting back out, copy-paste what ChatGPT says. So you are in this space, Colin, where you have this great responsibility, right, to really be able to help lawyers and legal professionals understand to say, hey, stop, you've got this ethical responsibility, you got to be able to use it, but you also got to understand it. How do you how do you deal with that? Because I have difficulty, right? And I, and I give CLEs and I evangelize this all the time. Jared and I evangelize this on the podcast, but it's not easy. How, how do you deal with it, Colin? So I think you deal with it this way. Uh, first of all, reminding yourself that as a lawyer, to be a competent lawyer means at the very least double checking your work, uh, just like you were in high school you know, double check your work. Uh, so I think that these court cases are less a function of the technology going awry, because I don't think the technology went awry at all. It was more of these lawyers just not being confident and not checking their work. The data that is used to train these models underlying ChatGPT and others is not legal specific. In fact, there's very little legal data involved. So to rely on it as a source of court information or think that anything it's spitting out at you is going to be a completely accurate, that's just not going to happen. Now, does it make it seem like it is truthful? Yes, but that's the intent of the way the model was programmed. That's not any kind of like misintent or, you know, the program thinking for itself. It's literally doing what it was told to do. And it, so it's up to you to really take anything that it comes, that it comes out with, with a grain of salt and double check it. You know, if a case seems like it's a little bit weird or seems almost too on point, but you probably want to double check it because it's a case of, you know, some things really are too good to be true. So I think ultimately when it comes to generative AI, you have to understand we're at the early stages of it. The data is limited um, and that will change going forward. 
but particularly for legal use cases, be especially careful because the information may or may not be completely accurate. It's going to come off like it's accurate, but it may not be. Well, the legal tech industry is certainly evolving. You know, what are some of the emerging trends that excite you the most, Colin? Sure. Well, I'm laughing a little bit as I say this because I don't like courtrooms and want nothing to do with litigation at all, which is why I'm a transactional attorney in some ways. Uh, but I think one fascinating area that I have long been excited about has been litigation prediction, litigation analytics, and legal research, because I think there's a lot of data that's at play there. And there are a lot of different ways to make use of that data to predict the outcome of cases, to help you craft better arguments, to help you write better briefs, to help you craft better patterns, to help prosecute different patent slash IP cases. So all that I think is super exciting to me from a technical and data perspective. But again, I would not want to be a litigator at all or be anywhere near a courtroom with respect to uh, litigation matter because it's just not my thing. And I don't like being yelled at or being criticized or what have you. So I would like to lose my temper and be thrown in, in jail for contempt of court. Joking, by the way, joking, joking. <laughs> What about the litigation funding industry? Have you ever looked into that? Because that's some fairly advanced analytics that they do. That is, that is. I have a, I'm not sure how I feel about litigation funding, to be honest. On the one hand, as a business, it makes sense. But on the other hand, I question whether it's simply contributing to the litigation overflow that exists in this country. But I don't have enough data or enough knowledge of it to say one way or the other. So I would say I'm neutral on it right now. Okay. One last question, Colin. You mentioned in the book that you started a technology company in high school, but you didn't mention what it was. So I was curious. Yes. Uh, well, this was back when I was a bit actually skeptical and fearful of technology myself. I and some friends did co-found a company and it was a website design company, which at the time designing websites was a big thing because websites were a fanciful new thing that very few people had but needed help with doing. Nothing really happened with it, but it was definitely a fun thing to do and gave us some exposure to starting and, and running a business. So that was that was fun. Very cool. Well, Colin Levy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Colin Levy is the author of The Legal Tech Ecosystem, and you can find him at colinslevy.com. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all of our episodes, transcripts, resources, and how to get in touch with us to continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.